0: Welcome to role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour, episode 60, Cyberpunk and Tunnels and Trolls. As we kick off this week's show, I have to once again apologize for calling an audible last week. It kind of sucks when your research comes up short, and it's also embarrassing. However, we've gotten mostly positive responses to last week's show, and I thank all of you for that. Needless to say, I had to make sure I brought more than my A game this week and I hope it shows. I don't want to say I think it shows because I don't want to be that guy that breaks my arm patting myself on the back. Alright, so before this gets any weirder than it already is, let's crank up the tour bus and get to it. Cyberpunk, which was designed by Mike Pondsmith and released by R. Talsorian Games, was first released in 1988. Poundsmith has stated numerous times over the years that he created cyberpunk in an attempt to mirror the various cyberpunk sci-fi novels that came out during the 1980s. Specifically, he named Hardwired, which was written by Walter John Williams. He also lists the films Blade Runner and Streets of Fire, as well as the anime Bubblegum Crisis as inspiration for the game. In several of the sources I tap for this show, it's been reported that there are a number of fans of the game that believe the novel Neuromancer by William Gibson was an influence. However, Pondsmith has stated that he didn't read that particular book until after Cyberpunk had been created and released. It should also be noted that Hardwired was such an influence on this game that Walter John Williams acted as a playtester. To date, there have been four editions of the game, and as we do on this show, we're going to take a look at each of them. The first edition was, as I mentioned, released in 1988. It was released as a boxed set, which was a common theme for tabletop role-playing games at the time. And if you don't believe me, ask other old-school gamers how many box sets they dropped big cash on during the 80s and early 90s. Trust me, if I had all that cash back, who am I kidding? If I hadn't bought all the box sets, I've just blown the cash on dice or books or anyway. The box set came with three books a 44 page handbook, a 38 page source book, and a 20 page combat book. It also had four pages of various game aids and two 10 sided dice, as D10s were the dice used in this version of the game. Four source books were published for Cyberpunk in 1989 Rocker Boy, which was a source book for that class, Solo of Fortune, which was a source book for the Solo class. Hardwired, which, as you might have guessed, was a source book based on the novel that inspired the game, which, if you think about it, is pretty damn meta. And Near Orbit, which is a space supplement. I think that pretty much explains what that was all about. Needless to say, the core boxed set and the supplements sold quite well and inspired a second edition of the game. But before we get to that, I have a couple more notes on first edition. As time wore on, the first edition of Cyberpunk got a new name and was referred to as Cyberpunk 2013. The reasoning for that will become more clear in just a few minutes. And let's take a couple of looks at reviews for first edition. Stuart Week reviewed it for White Wolf number 14. He gave it an overall rating of 3 and said that, quote, Cyberpunk is a fine game set in an environment which is very conducive to role-playing, end quote. Paul Mason reviewed the game for the May 1989 edition of Games International. He noted that the rules were disorganized and lacked an index. He also claimed to have found numerous typos and stated that it was, quote, a sign of rushed production, end quote. However, he did say the concept of the game was, quote, quite appealing, end quote. That being said, he believed that the combat system was too constricted by data tables to be overly descriptive. His overall rating was 3 out of 5, and he concluded his review by stating, quote, All in all, cyberpunk does the job. If you want to run a game in this genre and you want a single source of rules and background, then this game will be adequate to the task. It doesn't contain any ideas radically new to role gaming, however, and so won't be much use to anyone else except inveterate collectors, end quote. Ouch. Well, obviously not all gamers agreed with Mason's statement, since as I mentioned a moment ago, the game sold quite well. The second edition of Cyberpunk, released in 1990, again credited to Mike Pondsmith and released by R. Talsorian Games, this version of Cyberpunk got the name Cyberpunk 2020. See, I told you the reason for the renaming of the original version would get clearer. Just like first edition, second edition was a box set. This time though, it had a 222 page book and a 24 page reference guide. And it was also an adventure book and those were all in the box. There were a number of adjustments made from first edition to second edition. The combat rules were updated. Net running was updated. Character creation was streamlined and improved. Now we'll get to the reviews on this in a minute, but overall the changes were welcomed by the gaming community, and as well as the 1st edition sold, 2nd edition sold even better. Our Talsorian Games saw what this version brought to the table and released two revised versions. Cyberpunk 2020 version 2.00 released in 1992, and Cyberpunk 2020 version 2.01 in 1993. The revised editions added errata from the previous versions and cleaned up issues that had been noticed as the game was played more and more. 28 various rule supplements and 6 adventures were published for this version of the game between 1993 and 1996. Additionally, Atlas Games picked up a license to publish their own adventures for Cyberpunk 2020, and they dropped 12 of their own between 1991 and 1994. This system was so popular that DreamPod 9 released Night's Edge in 1992. The entire idea of Night's Edge was to take the setting of Cyberpunk 2020 and add a horror theme to it, which of course included werewolves and vampires. Ten supplements and adventures were released for Night's Edge between 1992 and 1995. There was another alternate version of the game released to the gaming public. Cyber Generation was published in 1993. This version revolved around teenagers with superhuman skills and powers gained from a nanotech virus epidemic. Cyber Generation had two versions. The first one required Cyberpunk 2020 in order to play, but the second version was a standalone. Cyberpunk 2020 got the novel treatment as well, with two books released, one in 1995 and the other in 1996. Wizards of the Coast got into the Cyberpunk game in 1996, licensing the rights to the game for a collectible card game. Titled Netrunner, the card game was designed by Richard Garfield. By the way, this card game got a second release a couple of years later, but it had the name changed to Android Netrunner, but it had all references to Cyberpunk 2020 removed because Wizards had lost their license for the card game. With a new edition came new reviews. Alan Varney reviewed the game for the September 1992 issue of Dragon Magazine. Varney stated he liked the style of 2nd edition and noted it was, quote, more stylish than 1st edition, end quote. However, he didn't like all the typos he found and noted there were, quote, more in this edition than in the 1st edition, end quote. In Varney's review, for every positive he had about the game, the streamlined combat system, the net running system, the style, he had a negative, Things like the duality of modern combat, the game's lack of an index, and what he called, quote, the dichotomy of a system where you can break into a Eurobank and embezzle five million bucks, but you'd better pay your phone bill on time or you're in big trouble, end quote. Overall, he said that, quote, the Cyberpunk games second edition surpasses its first edition on every count, end quote. A 1996 reader poll from Arcane Magazine ranking the 50 most popular role playing games of all time put Cyberpunk at 10th. Paul Pettengale, the editor of Arcane, said this Cyberpunk was the first of the straight Cyberpunk RPGs and is still the best. After an excellent 15 year run, our Talsorian Games decided it was time for another edition. Cyberpunk version 3.0 was released in 2005. Set in the 2030s, it brought Cyberpunk into the aftermath of the fourth corporate war. The global net has been corrupted and is basically unusable. To make things worse, most hard copied data has also been corrupted, so all of human history is in doubt. This edition brought six new subcultures to the game, one of which are the edge runners, which are the successor to the cyberpunks of the previous two editions. Also for version 3.0 was a change in game systems. Rather than the interlock system, which had been used in Cyberpunk 2020, version 3.0 uses the Fusion system. Two source books were published for this version between 2007 and 2008. Needless to say, version 3.0 did not go over well with the gaming public. It started with the criticism of the setting itself. Numerous gamers were pissed that so many of the things that made Cyberpunk, Cyberpunk had just been removed with the crashing of the net. Further, the artwork inside the sourcebook itself took a major hit from players. I'm not even going to include any of the reviews of this version of the game, trust me. Let's just say that if reviews of previous editions were mixed at worst, mixed reviews for version 3.0 would have been a positive for this version, and they didn't get very much of anything I'd call positive. Reviewers across the board trashed the game, leaning into many of the same complaints the players had. So, our Talsorian games quietly let the system kind of just simmer for a bit, but they didn't let the license sit. Instead of tabletop role-playing games, they licensed the product for another collectible card game, as well as a video game. In 2003, Social Games licensed the title for a collectible card game. Titled Cyberpunk CCG, it was designed by Peter Wax. It had okay sales, but not enough to keep the line alive for an extended period of time. In 2007, Mayhem Studios released Cyberpunk, Araska's plot for the J2Me platform. I don't even know if I got that right or not, but I got close. It was a 2D platformer and it did okay business. Let's be honest though, when the fans of a tabletop role-playing game want their game back, they tend to find ways to get their game back. Based on sales from PDFs online, R-Talsorian decided at some point that another version of Cyberpunk was called for. The first thing they decided when working up a new version of the game is that it would be better for all involved to basically just put version 3.0 in its own timeline. They just kind of decided they wanted to act like version 3.0 didn't happen, and they set fourth edition in whatever position they wanted to. So Cyberpunk Red was developed as the fourth edition of the line. In the interests of prepping the gaming public for Cyberpunk Red, the Cyberpunk Red Jumpstart Kit was released at Gen Con in August of 2019. A simplified version of the rules, the Jumpstart Kit was, you guessed it, a boxed set. The idea behind releasing the Jumpstart Kit was to buy some time to get the full rules lined up better with the video game that was being released at the same time as the rules. We will discuss the video game in a moment. However, shortly after delaying the release, the entire world got shut down thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, which wound up putting the release off just that much longer. The Cyberpunk Red Core Rulebook was finally released in November of 2020. This version is set after the Fourth Corporate War. However, since version 3.0 has been sort of erased from the timeline, all of the elements that make Cyberpunk the game players knew and loved are here. Thus far, sales of the game have been good, and there are plans for further rules, supplements, and adventures to be released in the coming months. If you're interested in checking out Cyberpunk Red, it's available at your friendly local neighborhood game shop, and I know this because I saw copies of it at my favorite game shop just a week or so ago when I was purchasing something else that I'm going to drop on my group at a later date. You can also check out the R. Talsorian Games website at rtalsoriangames.com. The video game that ties into Cyberpunk Red is called Cyberpunk 2077 and was released simultaneously with Cyberpunk Red in November of 2020. Published by CD Projekt Red, who also developed the Witcher series of games, Cyberpunk 2077 is an open-world action role-playing game. And I do realize this is a bit out of order of the timeline I've been doing, but there's also a miniatures war game based on Cyberpunk Red on the market titled Combat Zone. It was released late in 2021 and was designed by R. Talsorian Games and Monster Fight Club, and it should be available wherever you get your miniatures. I also have a review of Cyberpunk Red, so let's peep that before we move on. At the release of Cyberpunk Red in November of 2020, Forbes Magazine did a review. Rob Weiland said, quote, One of the signature elements of the game, Life Paths, went through a great refinement. Life Path is a chart where players roll to determine elements of their character history. It creates lovers, friends, rivals, and more for the GM to hang plot hooks on. Cyberpunk thrives on the personal connections between characters. Life path makes player buy-in easier. Players are going to be much more interested in a job given to them by an old flame than by a random NPC. End quote. Needless to say, Wyland loved the game. And can I just say it's really weird but really cool to have a tabletop role-playing game reviewed in Forbes magazine? Okay, so with the publication history of Cyberpunk covered, let's get into setting and system. The first thing we need to understand is that Cyberpunk's timeline splits from the, quote, real-world timeline in about 1990, which puts Cyberpunk's world in its own fictional setting. As of Cyberpunk Red, the game is set in the year 2045. 2045. The backstory of the setting is a rather intriguing one. The USA gets involved in a major conflict in Central America in the 1980s, which leads to a significant economic collapse. That collapse leads to a military coup, which results in the European common market and Japan as the superpowers of the time. It should also be noted that the Soviet Union doesn't collapse in this scenario, since the USA wasn't the nation it was in our timeline. We also see things like orbital habitats, food blights, and Oh yeah, by the late 1990s, the Middle East is a radioactive desert after a nuclear conflict. Bioengineering has led to cybernetic prosthetics and human-machine interfaces. The main locale for cyberpunk is the Night City, which is on the west coast between San Francisco and Los Angeles. I haven't even gotten to the game system itself yet, and I'm already sold. But let's look at the game system, since I did mention it. The game is built on the Interlock system, which was developed by R. Talsorian Games. Cyberpunk was the first tabletop system to use the interlock system. Its big core concept is the idea of difficulty values, which are based on what we would now call DC in Dungeons and Dragons, or a target number, like in Vampires or in Deadlands. This was one of the first systems to use a system by which you took an attribute, added a skill modifier, then rolled a die and added that to the total, and compared that to the assigned DV as per the GM. We might cover the interlock system more in another show, but we'll see, and you've got enough for now to make it work. So the characters in a cyberpunk game are known as cyberpunks, because of course they are. makes perfect sense. There are four basic tenets that cyberpunks live by. Style over substance. Attitude is everything. Always take it to the edge. Fuck the rules. Right on. It should also be understood that cyberpunks embrace body modifications, cybertech, and bioengineering. While most games have what they call character classes, cyberpunk has key roles. These are rocker boys, who are charismatic musicians, solos, bodyguards and assassins, netrunners, computer hackers, nomads, uh, consider them the road warrior types, fixers, street experts, medias, investigative journalists and reporters, techs, those are mechanics, med techs, doctors, corporate executives, and police officers. Now, we sort of discussed the life path system a few minutes ago, and it's a part of the system, combined with either assigning points to purchase skills or rolling dice for random outcomes. And of course, you get money to buy all your stuff with, including your cyberware. With character creation out of the way, sort of, let's look at combat. There's a specific system for combat in Cyberpunk, and it's referred to as Friday Night Firefight, and it puts the focus on lethality in combat. Here's the big thing to understand about this form of combat. In most game systems, the amount of damage, either by hit points or whatever system they use, that a character can absorb before death increases as the character levels up or improves. In Cyberpunk, that doesn't happen. You can take as much damage when you've played the character for two years as you could when you played your first game. That's the big thing I thought needed to be out there. Otherwise, the combat system is very similar to other games we've discussed on this show before. There are specific rules for hacking the net and the use of cybernetics, but these are very specific rules to the game and quite frankly would take longer to explain than I've got for today's show. Trust me, I've got a copy of Cyberpunk Red in front of me while I'm reading this, and there is a lot there. But once you learn it, it seems like it's pretty easy to use. So like I said a moment ago, if you're interested in trying Cyberpunk, you can pick up a copy of Cyberpunk Red at your friendly local neighborhood game store today. If you're interested in one of the other editions, you're going to need to get a PDF of that, so it'd be Artelsorian Games Online, or Drive Through RPG, which is my preferred locale for PC. Oh, and hit me up on the socials and let me know what you think about Cyberpunk Red. Next up on our tour, we shift gears and hit the Wayback Machine to talk about Tunnels and Trolls. Created by Ken St. Andre, the first edition of Tunnels and Trolls came to the market in April of 1975. See, I told you we were in the Wayback Machine. Anyway, St. Andre, who was a public librarian in Phoenix, Arizona when D&D came out, had been reading his friend's D&D books and decided, He liked fantasy role-playing games. His problem with D&D, though, was that the rules were confusing. And for the record, Ken St. Andre isn't the only person who's ever said that about the original version of D&D. Trust me, I own a PDF copy of those rules. I've been gaming for 40 years, and they still confuse the hell out of me. So St. Andre decided he would write his own rules. As he said several times over the years, I just wanted something I could play with my friends at a reasonable price with reasonable equipment. The very first edition was self-published by St. Andre. By July of 1975, however, Flying Buffalo Inc. had made a deal with St. Andre and they published what was being called a second edition of the game. Needless to say, with the backing of what was, at that time, a fairly well-respected publishing company, Tunnels and Trolls brought the competition directly to D&D. While Tunnels and Trolls and D&D shared a number of things, including similar statistics, classes, and adventures, Tunnels and Trolls did do a few things quite differently. First off, Tunnels and Trolls was the first tabletop role-playing game to introduce a point-based magic system. This was in direct opposition to D&D's system of memorizing a certain number of spells per day to cast. The other major difference was that Tunnels and Trolls used six-sided dice only for its roles. Game designer and author Michael Tresca has written about Tunnels and Trolls over the years, and he's noted that the game, quote, presented a better overall explanation of its rules and brought a sense of impish fun to the genre, end quote. Brant Bates wrote about the first edition of Tunnels and Trolls for The Space Gamer and called it, quote, very playable and a lot of fun, end quote. He also recommended it, quote, for fantasy fans who aren't purists." End quote. Lewis Pulsifer did a review for White Dwarf, and he stated that, quote, "'Tunnels and Trolls' is much more limited than D&D is in every way. Anyone who likes TNT will sooner or later graduate to the much more satisfying and much more widely played D&D." End quote. At some point in this timeline, a third edition of the game was released, but I have been unable to determine exactly when that occurred. What I believe happened was that second edition got what we would now refer to as an update, as opposed to a full-on revision, but was numbered as a new edition. A fourth edition was released in 1977, and according to all sources I found, it was virtually identical to the second edition with a few updates made to the game. Flying Buffalo didn't stop making changes, and did make some modifications to the game before they released the fifth edition of the game in 1979. Some of the class abilities were altered, as well as some of the rules for combat. Also, some of the spells were adjusted to fit better with the way they were actually being used in gameplay. That's a novel idea. The fifth edition of Tunnels and Trolls was also released in the United Kingdom, and was translated and published in Germany, France, Italy, Finland, and Japan. And it should be also noted that for the most part, Tunnels and Trolls was available in those other markets before D&D appeared there which gave them the advantage in the worldwide game market. In 1980, Steve Jackson reviewed the fifth edition for the Space Gamer and stated that, quote, on the whole, a good book worth the price for any adventure gamer, just for the ideas and comments it holds. A must for anyone playing TNT with an earlier edition, end quote. Eric Goldberg wasn't as positive as Steve Jackson. He reviewed the game for the July 1980 edition of Ares and called it, quote, a pleasant puff piece, end quote. He did admit, though, that, quote, Since first edition, the production values have increased from amateur status to a nearly professional standard, end quote. He wouldn't recommend it either, stating that, quote, The game will be passed over by all but the completest. There are better buys on the market now, end quote. Since I can't end the reviews from this period of time with that, here's one from Ken Rolston, who reviewed it for Different Worlds, quote, TNT is a system which I believe compares favorably with the other FRP systems available, and one which I believe is worth your attention. I have enjoyed the years I have played the system, and I believe TNT represents a particularly attractive philosophy of PRP, a philosophy that deserves your consideration whether you play the TNT system or not. Other reviewers stated the simplicity of the rules was its strong suit, since it would be way easier for inexperienced players to not only learn and understand, but cause them to want to keep playing. In the 1996 Arcane Magazine poll for the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time, Tunnels and Trolls came in at 32. Paul Pettengale called it, quote, pretty crude, end quote, and said, quote, it's probably here for nostalgic reasons, end quote. In 1999, Pyramid Magazine named Tunnels and Trolls one of the Millennium's most underrated games. Scott Herring, Pyramid editor, said this, quote, Everybody knows this was the second ever fantasy role-playing game, but to dismiss it as just an opportunistic ripoff would be grossly unfair. Flying Buffalo's TNT had its own zany feel. It was much less serious than D&D and a less complicated game system, end quote. By 2005, Flying Buffalo had decided the world needed tunnels and trolls again, and they updated the 5th edition rules. Borrowing from Wizards of the Coast, they called their updated rules the 5.5 edition and added about 40 pages of new material to the game. Let's be honest, with as long as it had been between 5th edition and 5.5, this was technically the 6th edition. Later in the year, Fiery Dragon Productions had acquired a license from Flying Buffalo, and they decided a 30th anniversary game was in order. It came out in a tin box, and included a CD, map, monster counters, and two new versions of the rules. Ken St. Andre was involved in the 30th anniversary game, and he took advantage of the opportunity to make major changes. He updated the style of gameplay and introduced new role-playing concepts, one of which was the idea of the character's level being determined by character attribute statistics instead of experience points, which he believed were arbitrary at best. This version also introduced a skills system, which D&D had done five years earlier in the third edition of D&D. For the record, many players, and Flying Buffalo themselves, refer to the 30th anniversary edition of the rules as the 7th edition. Fiery Dragon updated the rules from the 30th anniversary edition in 2008, and they called this version 7.5 as, in their words, they, quote, just updated and clarified some rules. It's not a huge change, end quote. In 2012, the 8th edition of Tunnels and Trolls was released, but there is a caveat to this. Grimtooth released this version under license, and the 8th edition was only released in France, translated of course. However, Ken St. Andre provided clarification to the rules, which combined aspects of the 7th edition and 5.5. In the rest of the world, where they didn't get the 8th edition, there were a number of solo adventures and regular adventures released through Lulu.com. However, Flying Buffalo wasn't done with the product just yet. Rick Loomis, the head of Flying Buffalo, reported that he'd been, quote, so impressed, end quote, with the French 8th edition, he wanted a new edition of the game for release in the US market and the rest of the world. Deluxe Tunnels and Trolls, which was written again by Ken St. Andre, was released in August of 2015. Reviewers are mixed on this version of the game, much like they have been on the game from the very beginning. The Deluxe Edition is, for now, the last edition of the game that's come out. However, it is still in print. Your chances of finding it in your friendly local neighborhood game shop are probably slim. However, they might be able to order it for you if you ask. It is available online from a number of sources if you're so inclined. Now, I mentioned something about Solo Adventures a moment ago. That's one of the trademarks of Flying Buffalo, who made their name in the gaming business initially as a play-by-mail company. Over the years, 35 solo adventures have been published for the various editions of the game, as well as a number of group adventures. There were also some additional reference books published by Flying Buffalo and the various companies who had the license over the years. There have also been two spin spin-offs of the game published. Monsters, Monsters was technically a subset of TNT rules, where the point was to play the monsters in the game. It's compatible with 5th edition and was last published in 1979 by Metagaming, Though Flying Buffalo currently holds the rights and occasionally prints new copies to sell. Mercenaries, Spies, and Private Eyes is also a variant system, written by Michael A. Stackpole and published by Flying Buffalo in 1983. Sleuth Publications Limited got the rights to this variant and released it in 1986. This version added the skill system before TNT did, include stats for modern weapons, and changed the timescale of combat rounds. Let's cover one more line of products before we break down the game itself. There have been multiple video games based on Tunnels and Trolls released over the years. In the 1980s, ColecoVision was supposed to have a game. It was announced, but never released. My guess would be because ColecoVision died a horrible death as a game system, but I could be wrong. In 1990, New World Computing published Crusaders of Kazan, which basically took some of the most popular solo adventures and adapted them for the computer game. This game was included in that 30th Anniversary Game 10 I mentioned earlier. In 2008, James Jacobs released an Amiga and Windows adaptation of the game. And in 2017, Meta Arcade published a game, Tunnels and Trolls Adventures, for iOS and Android. It's an adaptation of the system that features 20 classic quests. At release, Meta Arcade promised new content on a regular basis. For the record, I tried to find Tunnels and Trolls Adventures in the Google Play Store, as I personally use an Android phone, and it wasn't there. If you can find it, hit me up and let me know. I'll load it onto my phone, play it, and review it for the YouTube channel. So before we break down the system itself, let's look at the setting. All the way through 5th edition, there really wasn't a specific setting referred to. It was more or less left to the imagination of the gamer in the GN. Ken St. Andre has noted that his concept was based on Lord of the Rings mixed with Marvel Comics, Conan, Elric, and the Grey Mouser. The Deluxe Edition bases its setting in Ken St. Andre's house setting, known as Troll World. Early players Jim Peters and Liz Danforth, who also contributed to the books over the years, also provided setting material for the Deluxe Edition. So with that covered, let's get into the system itself. And let me warn you up front, a lot of this is going to sound very familiar you have been warned. At the beginning, there were eight primary attributes for characters. Strength, which determines what weapons the character can use and how much they can carry. Starting in 5th edition, it also serves as magic points. Intelligence, measures the character's ability to think and remember facts. Luck, affects combat results and saving throws. Constitution, measures how healthy the character is and how much damage the character can take before being killed. Dexterity, represents agility, nimbleness, and affects marksmanship. Charisma, represents attractiveness and leadership ability. Later on, there were two more attributes added, Wizardry, this replaced strength for powering magic points, and Speed, which represents reaction speed and movement rate. Attributes are determined by rolling three six-sided dice for each statistic. The core race of Tunnels and Trolls was intended to be human, but Elves, Dwarves, and Hobbits were also options, which tells me that Tolkien Estate didn't take TNT nearly as seriously as they took D&D. See the D&D episode and the Gary Gygax episode if you're curious what the hell I'm talking about here. Players also had the option to play as a monster race, but Zombie and Vampire were the two that were pushed for the most in the rules. In the early editions of the game, there were two base classes, Warriors and Wizards. Wizards can cast spells but are limited in combat, Warriors can wear armor and use weapons and are better in combat. Obviously. Later, the Rogue and the Warrior Wizard were also added. Rogues in TNT are more like Rogue Wizards than the D&D Rogue. They have some spells, limitations on weapons and armor, and don't get all the cool abilities of either class. Warrior Wizards don't have the same limitation as Rogues, but need to have really good stats to pull off this class choice. Even further down the addition line, the warrior wizard became the paragon and three other classes were added, specialist mage, leader, and ranger. So, with your cool character created, how do you do combat in this game? Combat works like this. The character and their opponent have opposing die rolls. They each roll a number of dice determined by the weapon they're using. Then they modify the result by personal adds, which I'll get to momentarily. Totals are compared and the higher roll wins. The loser is damaged by the difference in the totals. The damage is absorbed by armor, but any amount of damage over what the armor can absorb is subtracted from constitution. Personal adds come from strength, luck, and dexterity. For every point above 12 in each of those, the player gets a point to their personal adds. Oh, and if they have a score of 9 or under, they lose a point for every point below 9. In 7th edition, speed was added to the personal add list. In 5.5, and in all editions since, something called Spite Damage was added. This means that any 6 rolled on the dice will automatically do a point of damage, regardless of armor or the totals. This was added because players had complained about stalemates in combat. One more point about combat. Tunnels and Trolls handles combat between large groups with one roll for each group rather than individual rolls for each combatant. That's if you're doing large scale. Saving rolls are used during combat to either break stalemates or counter characters being outmatched. They're also used to counter ranged weapons. Saving rolls are also used in all tests of skill or luck. They're made by taking the character's attribute and adding 2d6 to it. For this, if you roll doubles, you keep the number and you re-roll the dice. The total is compared to a difficulty level for the task. There's actually a formula for this, regardless of the level of saving throw. The formula is 15 plus 5X, and the X is the level of difficulty. This formula is noted for being among the earliest, if not the first, use of that particular mechanic in a tabletop role-playing game. As I mentioned, there are copies of the deluxe edition of Tunnels and Trolls out there for purchase if you're interested. Or if you're a PDF fan, some of the different editions are available on DriveThruRPG, which also has many of the adventures and supplemental materials as well. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we switch from games to game companies as we cover Flying Buffalo, Palladium Books, and FASA Corporation. If you haven't done so already, I highly recommend you head over to the Bad GM Productions YouTube channel and subscribe as I keep dropping YouTube exclusive videos and will continue to do so over the next few weeks as I've picked up some game materials that I want to explore for you. And that format seems like the best place to do that sort of thing. I also need to point out if you are a current subscriber to the Role Playing History YouTube channel, we are going to stop adding new material to that channel on August 1st first, so you're going to need to subscribe to the Bad GM Productions YouTube channel to keep getting all of the material that you've been enjoying thus far. I would also be exceptionally grateful if you'd check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. We're building a Deadlands campaign, and I'm also providing some of the inside dirt on my home campaign, which is running the stuff we create on the show, pretty much. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you find your podcasts. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for license free, royalty-free music for your next project. Role-playing history is a production of bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash bad GM Productions, Twitter at bad GMP, YouTube bad GM Productions, and you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. Next week it's Flying Buffalo, Palladium Books, and FASA Corporation. Oh, and for the record, I'm going to be getting into the details of a court case for one of the few times in the history of this show. That should get interesting. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your Role Playing History.